You're listening to Breast Cancer Connection, where we connect you with breast cancer experts on what you need to know to navigate your experience. Hello, I'm Kathy Mendelea, and today we're talking about how to get the most out of your oncology appointments. Today we are joined by Dr. Christine Simmons, medical oncologist and clinical associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Simmons. Thank you for having me, Kathy. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Thank you. So after a patient receives a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer, what is the usual process of selecting treatment? How do you proceed with that? Yeah, geez, that's a, you know, that's a really good question. When someone is first diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, there is a lot going on. And that diagnosis might come from the family doctor, it might come from other physicians, but it might come from the oncologist that the person has been working with uh, over the years. And a lot of the decision-making with regards to what to do next really depends on the particular subtype of the breast cancer itself. It also depends on the extent or, or how much of, of the person's body is involved or, or has breast cancer spots in it. So uh, having completion of, of staging or, or having a scan done to see if there are uh, spots of cancer in, in multiple different parts of the body or only in one or two parts of the body and what that might look like. Um, and then also looking at how the person is feeling and what symptoms uh, a, a person has. Do they have absolutely no symptoms and this was a surprise finding? Or is that person having symptoms or signs of um, a particular organ uh, being in distress, such as you know, liver uh, um, dysfunction or, or an ability to, for the liver to work as well as it should? So all of those pieces of information really kind of coincide and, and, and come together to help us on the medical side of things figure out what would be the best approach or the, the best treatment to, to choose from moving forward. Ultimately, I'd say, though, first and foremost, one of the most important pieces of information, the most important person in the room is the patient themselves and their values, their wishes, their preferences um, in terms of treatment options are, are really important to consider. So, you know, there's a lot that um, goes into that uh, first, um, first diagnosis appointment of metastatic disease and those first decision-making points as to, to what to do with um, treatment options to, to make sure that the best possible, better than standard of care options are being uh, explored and being offered. Yeah, yeah. So in the same context, what kind of team members are they expecting to see when they arrive at the clinic? And what is discussed with the patient? Are you discussing symptom management, how to uh, bring your support care with you, appointments and how they're scheduled? Can you just go and review that a little bit for us? 
Yeah, absolutely. The team members that a, a person has when you have metastatic breast cancer um, can vary, obviously, from center to center and in terms of uh, the actual uh, people and, and their roles. But there, I think it's important for every Canadian to know that there is a team. And even if you don't see every member of that team every single visit, that team is there for you. Um, and everyone is ready to act in their, um, at their important time. At times, there may be a radiation oncologist that you might meet that may help to provide local treatment to an area such as bone um, that may cause pain. Um, there's your medical oncologist who's often the quarterback, dare I say, at this point in time, um, and helps to, to coordinate um, treatment options to help uh, keep the cancer in check or to ideally cause the, the cancer to shrink back and regress. In terms of uh, other physician members of the team, there might be a surgeon that gets involved. If there is a particular spot that, that could be treated with local surgical treatment. And then the physician or, or allied health team that takes part of what we call in British Columbia here, the pain and symptom management um, team. In other parts of Canada, this team might actually be called the palliative care team. But their role really is in pain and symptom management. And that can be, you know, things with regards to not just pain symptoms, but symptoms such as cough, symptoms such as shortness of breath, symptoms such as fatigue or decreased appetite related to metastatic breast cancer itself. The other members of the team, there are allied health professionals that are of critical importance. There are oncology nurses. In some clinics, there might be one particular oncology nurse that you are linked with. In other clinics, there might be a few oncology nurses that um, share a practice and, and help to, to coordinate your care. The clerical team, um, those are the people who typically book your appointments and schedule your appointments. And, you know, there, there's also a role for physiotherapy and nurses that may come into the home or, or home care um, supports. So there's a there's a lot of, of people and and you know the other team members I think it's very important to to be aware of is those team members that are part of the patient and family counseling department or the psycho oncology department has again these terms might be different in different jurisdictions across Canada but someone who has a background in psychology or psychiatry who may be able to help with symptoms of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, or various other aspects of uh, mental health with regards to providing care for you over the course of this journey. One of the important mindsets that I, I think is often a struggle for people when they are faced with a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer. Many people have had a previous breast cancer and now have had the breast cancer come back in a different part of the body, like liver, lung, bone, or brain. And that is why um, they've developed uh, metastatic disease, or that's how the, the metastatic disease has presented. But unlike in the 
curative setting where someone was first diagnosed with a breast cancer in the breast or in the breast and, and lymph nodes only, and their treatment was being given to, to cure and rid their body of that disease, because we know that we can when it's just local. Um, I always kind of draw the analogy of in the curative setting, it's like you're running a sprint, right? We're trying to treat that cancer with really aggressive treatment up front. We're trying to push it back and, and kill off every last little cell that, that's potentially going to, to cause a problem in the future and rid your body of cancer and then allow you to continue on with the rest of your life cancer-free. Well, now that mindset is shifted. When someone has a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer, we still, unfortunately, do not have a cure for metastatic breast cancer. So in this situation, the mindset shifts to that more of a marathon, right? So our goals of treatment moving forward are to keep that person feeling as good as possible for as long as possible. And we're always going to be coming back to the person and asking them, you know, is this treatment tolerable? And we're always going to be asking with tests and with how the person feels, is there evidence that this is working? So there's a, a lot going on. This is a, a long trajectory. And these people who are part of the team, you're not going to see them all at once. Um, you're not going to see them every single time you come to the cancer agency. But um, everyone has a role to play. And everyone's role is aimed at supporting that person and um, helping them to feel as good as possible for as long as possible. Yeah, thank you. That that that's great. That's amazing. That that covers quite a bit. One last question in this area is um the wealth of information that is provided to the patient when they arrive. They're going to be given either a clinical trial, they're going to be offered a clinical study, they're going to be offered genetic testing. They're going to be offered a whole array of, you know, do's and don'ts. How do you support a patient to understand what they're actually listening to? Because it does become lengthy and it does become confusing to patients. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I totally agree. It feels sometimes like it's a tsunami of information that this person is, you know, trying to digest and the other analogy, you know, trying to drink from a fire hose. There's so much information both in the clinic and in, in various places online. And the person themselves is likely also getting well-meaning uh, information from, from other friends and family as well. So it is hard to, to unpack and it's hard to try to help coordinate for a person. I would say, you know, every single team member is aware that this is an overwhelming time for someone who's just been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And we know that there are going to be questions that, that come up that we're going to have to answer multiple times because it's just too much um, at the initial visit to, to take in. And it might be too much, you know, three or four visits in. So, you know, I, I'm very well aware that I, I'm going to have to answer these questions more than once for you. And, and that's my job. I advise all of the people that I have the privilege of being involved with and, and caring for 
to write their questions down. I personally like the idea of having, you know, a spiral notebook or maybe you're a uh, real techie person and you like to bring your iPad with you or your phone. But, you know, nothing's more satisfying uh, than going through a list of questions and um, answering them uh, for a person. If the list is particularly long, we might not be able to get to all of those questions in one visit, and we might have to park a few and come back to them at another visit to make sure that everything is is taken care of in a timely fashion. But uh, yeah, don't be afraid to ask for guidance. If you're feeling overwhelmed, don't be afraid to let us know, let your team know that you're feeling overwhelmed. You know, there's always the information, what does this person absolutely need to know to move to the next point in their journey and what would be nice to make sure that they have an understanding of from a big picture perspective. And I think that that's an important differentiation for us as clinicians to really keep in mind, especially when our, our patients are, are, are people that we're caring for are starting to feel overwhelmed. So in terms of the people that we're all caring for, one way or another, when it comes to the collaboration of making the decision, so there's going to be decisions that they have to make, whether it be one drug versus another, they're going to ask, what if this fails? What if this doesn't work? What to do next? So how does the team and the oncologist prepare a patient to feel confident enough to to engage in you know, the shared decision-making. Some may say, I'll leave it up to you, doctor, and, you know, I'll go with what you say. But there are others who will feel that they want to be part of the decision-making, but it's confusing. So how do you, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, give them confidence to make a decision alongside with their physician? Yeah, that's a really good point. There's a lot of treatments. And I think that's, you know, one of the great things about caring for people who have metastatic breast cancer nowadays, Kathy, is that even in my career, which, okay, I'm what, I'm mid-career now, but uh, even over the course of my career, the opportunities, the available treatments, the length of time that we are able to provide people and the quality of life that we are able to provide people has improved immensely, even over the past decade. So it is likely to continue to improve at that rate as well. But there is a large, long list of possible treatment options, which is great, um, but it means that it um, coming to a, a person and saying, do you want, which of this list on this menu of treatment options would you like right now? That's not appropriate, right? We do know based on clinical trials, based on science, what treatment options are most effective at certain time points. And we know that there are, so we know that not only is there evidence for certain treatment options that are better if we use them earlier um, or are stronger, therefore stronger as in more effective against the cancer, so we should use the best possible treatments first. But there are also certain funding rules and regulations, um, such that if we 
offer one treatment before another, we might lose access to a third treatment down the line, just the way our Canadian healthcare system works. And some of those rules are different between different provinces. So while it's not appropriate for us to, to just, you know, vomit out a menu of, of chemotherapy options and say, you pick, it's important for us to provide um, some insight and some information about um, what treatment options are, are available. If there is a clinical trial available, if there is a clinical trial that is um, feasible or appropriate, it's important for you to hear about that so that you can make that decision whether or not it's something that you would want to participate in. And I think whenever a person is is faced with a clinical trial option versus what we'd call standard of care, the questions that I would have as, you know, that I would want the person who's who's thinking about a clinical trial to, to go through would be, you know, what is the the clinical trial that's being studied? What is the agent that's being studied? Um, how likely is it to be effective? What is it being compared to? Is it being compared to the same thing that I would be getting if I wasn't participating in the clinical trial? And, and what are the differences in terms of number of visits, number of tests, um, potential side effects or quality of life that I would expect if I do participate in a clinical trial or if I did not and, and proceeded with standard of care? And if there are a couple of options to choose from in standard of care, I'd ask the same questions. You know, again, am I going to lose my hair with drug X or drug Y? Am I going to feel nauseous? Is there going to be an issue with tingling or numbness in my fingers or in my toes? Or am I going to have hot flushes and have issues with sleep? So these are all questions that I think are important for a person to ask and to really provide their input on at this critical time. As a oncologist, I am looking to my patient, the person who I'm, I'm caring for, I'm looking to them to help guide, you know, the, the questions in my mind as to, is it the right time for us to start treatment right now? What treatment is, is best based on their values and, and what they value in terms of their um, function right now? How is it best delivered? You know, is this person, you know, living around the corner from the cancer agency and wants to come in uh, to see us every week? Or is this person living on an island up in Haida Gwaii and it takes her, you know, three ferries and uh, potentially an airplane uh, to get to us? And where do they want to receive care? So these are all important pieces that I look to my patients, to the, to the people that I'm caring for, to help guide so that we can come to a decision with regards to treatment that's best for them. Very good. Very good. So in terms of feeling supported, uh, most of the people that we care for and you care for will ultimately come with a family member or perhaps a caregiver or some friend or loved one. Is there a space for these individuals? And how could it be beneficial to the patient? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's space for caregivers, loved ones. I have to say, over the COVID pandemic, when the cancer agencies and hospitals had to close their doors to family and support people coming um, with, with cancer patients, 
it was noticeable. Um, it was a, a noticeable negative in terms of uh, quality of life. And I feel also quality of care. Having someone there, even just as an extra set of ears, to, to hear the answers to the questions that, uh, that you're asking, uh, to be able to provide insights as to how you're doing. And quite frankly, I will often have a, a sideward glance to the person who's coming to, with the person in the room when I ask the question, tell me how you're really feeling. I'm not actually looking at the patient themselves. I'm now looking at their support person who's come with them because I know where I'm going to get the truth. It's highly valuable for the person who has cancer to bring a support person with you. But you know what? It's also valuable to the person who's wanting to support you and to love you. And um, so I think it's, it's very beneficial all around. Yeah, often they feel alone and they also need to be doing something because helplessness doesn't help anybody. They feel that they need to be supportive and to be helpful to their loved one. And and finally, I would ask, uh, what about the patient or the person that we're caring for themselves? What would you recommend and what is it that they could do for themselves? For example, book massages, exercise therapy, music therapy, book club. What is it that they could do and they could feel that they have some control in their life while they're going through this path? so that they could feel that they're doing something for themselves. Because you lose your sense of, of control when all this is going around you. Yeah, no, for sure. There's a few things. Um, so if we come back to that um, preparing yourself for your clinic visit with the oncologist, kind of taking a, a mental note or being able to address with the oncologist any new symptoms that you've had since your last visit, new, constant, and progressive. Those are the three key factors that are really important and that I'd want to empower any person to, to bring up. I have a new pain. It's been there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's getting progressively worse over time. That's something that... Um, needs to be addressed, definitely. When you're first diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, it is overwhelming and there's a lot going on. But at some point during the trajectory of, of time, ensuring that it's communicated either with your oncologist or with the nurse or, or social worker so that it can be documented whether or not you have extended health benefits beyond what's covered by the provincial or OHIP or, or MSP or whichever provincial benefits you fall under because there are compassionate access programs or patient support programs that are available for a lot of new agents in the metastatic breast cancer setting and it may affect what treatment options are available to you, whether you have extended health benefits or not. I'd like to say it doesn't, but, but unfortunately, th there is some differentiation there. And so making sure that your team is kept updated with regards to that. And then also family history. If you have a family history that's suggestive of a genetic predisposition, there may be other treatment options that would be very, very effective to be used earlier on. 
In terms of other things that the person can do outside of the clinic to ensure that they're getting the best out of themselves. I am a big, big, big exercise proponent. Exercise is so helpful on so many levels. On the physical level, if you do happen to be on chemotherapy, nothing like getting that heart pumping and those kidneys working to get that chemotherapy moving through everywhere it needs to go and getting it out of your system and metabolized. So we do see that people recover from side effects faster and tolerate treatment better if they are able to exercise while they're on treatment. And exercise, I'm not talking about running a marathon. I'm talking about, you know, going for a walk around the block or going for a walk to the end of your driveway, if that's all that you feel you can handle that day. Moving in some way, shape or form is always beneficial. It's beneficial from a mental health perspective. It's beneficial from a cardiac health perspective. And why do we care about hearts? Well, we know that these treatments that we have for breast cancer, there are so many that, to be perfectly honest with you, there's other health issues such as heart health that that could be a, a part of your, your future as well. So So keep the rest of your body healthy as well. Massage, I love that idea, Kathy. Um, you know, anything that you can do to help yourself to, to feel relaxed. For each person, there's going to be different choices in that uh, area. Art therapy, music, hanging out with friends and family, reading a book. Everyone has, has different um, preferences there. Being with or uh, embracing those um, aspects of, of life that, that you enjoy is, is really important. And doing everything that you want to do and letting your team know if your cancer treatment or if your cancer is taking you away from that. I always say cancer treatment should fit into your life, not the other way around. And so if you're finding that you're not doing things, not going out for lunch with friends because of your cancer treatment, um, you know, to a certain extent, then, then it is important for, for your team to be aware um, and so that adjustments can be made. Well, thank you, Dr. Simmons. Thank you for spending time with us today and for sharing your insights. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for your expertise, and it was a fantastic session. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. For information and resources discussed today, take a look at our episode show notes and visit cbcn.ca to learn more. You can also find us on social media. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and join us next time for another episode of Breast Cancer Connection. We'd like to remind our listeners that what we've discussed in this podcast shouldn't be taken as medical advice. Any examples, tips, and or insights from this episode should be further discussed with patients, personal caregivers, and healthcare providers.